You're listening to a lonely gay boy and his co-host discuss horror movies, and not the good ones. A horror enthusiast podcast in which me, a lonely gay boy, and my co-host discuss horror movies, and not the good ones. Thanks for tuning in, new friend. Lonely Smith here, dear listener, and joined, as always, well, or at least most of the time, by co-host. There's nowhere else I'd want to be than right here with you talking horror movies. The enthusiasm is appreciated, uh, but that's total bullshit. Indeed, but I am glad to be back recording after taking last week off. And I'm glad to have you back. What's new since we last talked? Stranger Things Season 4 came out, and I have so many thoughts. Go on. Well, okay, so, so first, the average time for each episode is close to 80 minutes. You know, and that's after three seasons of averaging about, you know, 50 to 55 minutes. That leads to feeling bloated. Also, you know, what What the fuck is up with them still not confirming that Will's gay? You know, no plot spoilers, you know, don't, don't worry, but, you know, we're four seasons in on this series, and each season hints that Will's gay, you know, but that's it. Go on. He's clearly pining for Mike, who is oblivious, and it's a really sad character subplot, but, you know, maybe... Stop hinting when you're four-fifths through the story, maybe? Although if the episode-length trend continues, season five will be as long as the first two seasons combined, so so I guess there's plenty of time to shoehorn in actual on-screen representation with Will. Go on. Well, I just get the feeling that since the series is set in the 80s, you know, it'll end with some time jump and show us, you know, whoever's left alive, like, ten years later. And they'll be like, oh, look, Will's fine and living with a boyfriend now. You know, some new character who solely exists as a window dressing who we don't know or care about. Who, Ray? Go on. Well, I'm just sick of TV shows or books or even film series in which the traitors hint at queerness, but then go all, you know, we'll get to actually talking about it in a later one. Like, no, you know, this isn't 1950, and you're only allowed to hint at the villain sucking cock. You know, let's show a little progression here, people. Go on. Oh, I would, but... That sound means it's time I stop ranting about a TV series I rather enjoy, and we start tearing apart a fun but bad kids' horror flick from 1990. Is The Willies really a kids' movie? There's monsters, murder, blood... We'll get into it. Uh, but yeah, I don't even know who the audience was meant to be for this movie. You know, which is part of the problem. It's a comedy-horror anthology. 
And there is a sense of fun, helped along by featuring a ton of recognizable actors, which we'll get to shortly. But enough preamble. Let's get into the willies. Let's. We open up on total darkness as we hear three young boys bickering while they try to light a lantern. The oldest argues that he's the only one who's supposed to use matches. So once he lights the lantern, it's revealed to be Sean Astin. And he's camping out with his two cousins, who are slightly younger than him. The little bro doesn't have a whole lot going on upstairs, as he plans on using a jar of fireflies as light instead of the lantern. He also brought video game cartridges for them to play, although he forgot the actual game console. But he's one of those gotta-talk-constantly-to-fill-the-void to types, so he keeps telling gross jokes, much to his brother's irritation. And Sean Astin's uh, sort of humors him a little bit. It's sort of this repetitive joke, what's grosser than gross, and that he says something really gross like eating scabs. So Sean Astin starts telling a true story that he heard that is really gross. We cut to the fast food restaurant Tennessee Fricassee Chicken, a clear Kentucky Fried Chicken knockoff. And this fat lady orders, you know, a big old bucket of food. Then she, she brings her food to the booth, and she savors a huge bite, you know, spittle and all. And then she looks down and, and realizes it's a crispy fried rat. And she freaks out, and the, and the camera does that thing where it zooms in and out really fast, like Wayne's World, on her to jaunty music. And then we cut back to the boys camping out, and I realized that this was the entire first story in this anthology. Brisk. Yeah, being, being immature boys, they just hold a debate on whether or not the lady puked or not. But then older bro says he knows a true story that happened out in California. Cut to the Wacky Kingdom, which is clearly a Disneyland knockoff. Yeah, then we see this, one of those cheesy haunted rides where you, you sit down and they take you through the dark and like things leap out at you. Only instead of like a kid in it, it's this really old man. And he's played by Bill Irwin, who people will recognize because like all throughout the, like the 80s and 90s, he played really old men. And he freaks out when a zombie comes at him. And I would too, because this is the first on-screen appearance of stoner comedian Doug Benson. Clearly, he's only riled up because he doesn't have a joint. Yeah, he sort of, he sort of attacks the old man and his arm comes off. Uh, you know, that's not supposed to happen. So the zombie runs off and the ride continues as this Victorian-era, you know, British woman pleads for help as a ghoulish Jack the Ripper slits her throat and green blood shoots out onto the old man's sweater vest. There's a, there's a line of ghouls he passes, you know, Farmer Hackett jumps out and swings his axe at the old man. Cut to the end of the ride with a young lady thanking guests and, and telling them to enjoy their day. 
and the old man's seat arrives, but he's been scared to death. You know, she screams and faints. We pan outside the wacky kingdom to see a ghostly construction sign reading, Refurbishing in Progress, R.I.P. And back inside the tent, the older bro says, since the old man died of fright, well, that's why they had to make it a real wussy ride from now on. Sean Astin remembers hearing about it from someone who was on the ride that day. Like all urban legends. And then Little Bro says he knows a true, spooky, gross story, too, because it happened to his friend's grandmother. Cut to an old lady who has just washed her poodle in the kitchen sink. This doesn't appear to be a ripoff of a franchise, just someone's kitchen in the suburbs. So she puts the poodle uh, in her microwave to dry off so he won't get a cold. You know, and she sets it for three minutes on high. You know, like you should never, ever do. And the old lady's all, you know, cootsy-wootsy waiting for the three minutes while the poodle just kind of whimpers in the microwave. Uh, you know, but don't worry, the microwave, you know, three minutes ends and she's all excited, the poodle is all dry. You know, then, then Pooh comes fucking blows up through the window and covers the lady in gore in this kid's movie. It is cartoonish, at least. Back in the tent, the older boys don't believe little bro. Well, then Sean Astin says he knows an even better story. And this is when the older bro says... Wait wait, wait a minute. This isn't that dumb story about the time you and your friends found that pirate ship in an old cave? Such a fun Goonies reference. So Sean Astin... He reels the brothers in, saying this story is guaranteed to give you the willies. Cue lightning, you know, cut a title card and opening credits. I spotted in the credits, special effects are done by Tony Gardner. He's a big name in special effects. You might know him from working on such films as Hocus Pocus, The Craft, Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness, Dark Man. He's also the go-to in charge of the Child's Play films and TV series. You can see him as one of the zombies in Michael Jackson's Thriller video. And he plays himself in Seed of Chucky when he gets decapitated by the Chuckster and Tiffany. Oh, that's really cool. I, I didn't spot that. So Sean Astin says that his story happened before he moved to where the brothers now live, back at a school that his dad used to work at. This happened to a kid named Danny Hollister back at the town of Greeley. And we get this long, sweeping shot of Greeley. It's a small town, very idyllic. We're introduced to Danny, a short child with glasses who walks to the elementary school with his bag in one hand and his lunch in the other. And of course, being a slight child with glasses, three slightly larger but still little kids start bullying him. 
The main bully, Rudy, is wearing an Iron Maiden t-shirt, of course. And he's kind of got a mullet, and he's a real asshole. And one of his lackeys is Ben Seaver from The Growing Pains. And then, uh, then there's a third one. There's a third bully, but, but he, don't, he don't matter. So the kids throw Danny's stuff to the floor and, and shove him down. And Rudy notices a glass case from an art exhibit. Danny's colored pencil drawing of Greeley won first place and has a ribbon on it. So Rudy tears it down. I spotted a fun Easter egg. One of the children's art drawings has big blocky letters reading Tony G for Tony Gardner. Well, see, this, this is why I have you around, co-host. So, so Danny warns Rudy well, he'll get in trouble. So Rudy doubles down to ensure Danny won't tattle by having the other guys hold him while he grabs a fire hose, which can't be good. This is when we are introduced to Mr. Jenkins. He is this happy old janitor man with a mustache and glasses and sort of this happy old-timey accent. And just singing a song to himself. He is played by character actor James Karen, who started acting in the 1940s and continued until he died in 2018. He's one of those guys you see everywhere and go, Oh, it's that guy from that thing. Yeah. So, so Mr. Jenkins, he comes out to the hallway, and there's half a dozen kids staring up. Somehow, Danny is, is hanging from the ceiling with a fire hose, like, wrapped around his shoulders and waist, and the ribbon is over his mouth, so he's all muffled. So Mr. Jenkins tells the kids to skedaddle and questions Danny about how he got up there, although Danny can't reply. So Mr. Jenkins lets him down and helps untangle the, the poor kid, and, and Danny refuses to tell him who did it. But, you know, Mr. Jenkins guesses it was Rudy and his sidekicks frickin' frack, and, and he promises not to tell anyone that Danny told him who did it. In a bit of foreshadowing, Mr. Jenkins tells Danny not to worry, because bullies get what they deserve in the end. And he tells Danny to hurry to class because Miss Titmarsh is a real sourpuss. And he tells Danny if anyone bothers him, you know, come tell him. And, and Danny goes to class and Mr. Jenkins just leaves the fire hose hanging from the ceiling and, and heads to the boys' room to clean it. The man is on a schedule. So Mr. Jenkins carries his uh, cleaning cart into the boys' room and then we just see him through one of those the door has one of those, like, glass windows on it that is frosted or whatever, so you just see the outline on the other side, you know, which is good because it's, it's going into the boy's bathroom. And it, it looks like something bangs into the janitor's head, and he falls down. And then we meet Miss Titmarsh herself, played by Kathleen Freeman, who is also an extremely recognizable face from appearing in films and television for well over half a century, and she sure is a sourpuss here. You might recognize her as the nun from Blues Brothers, or the nun from Blues Brothers 2000. Oh, and she's a real bitch here. So she's starting class while Danny comes in and hangs up his coat, and she admonishes him and makes him pass out papers, and Rudy's in the class, 
and is a dick to Danny, as Miss Titmarsh says it's a test on fractions. They have 50 minutes to complete. You know, cut to some time later, and Rudy's shooting spitballs at Danny, and Danny raises his hand, but Miss Titmarsh is reading, so she ignores him. So he has to walk up to her desk to get her attention, to ask to go to the bathroom. She wraps a ruler on her desk and asks the class if they should let him go to the little boy's room. And they vote no, because <laughs> they're all little cretins. But she lets him go anyway, telling him not to run. So Danny has to um, sneak past the janitor's cart to get into the boy's room, because it's been left unattended. And, and he tries the first stall, but it won't open. So he thinks Mr. Jenkins is cleaning it. And then he goes in the second one, but it is out of order and disgusting. So he goes back to the first one again and because he just thinks that Mr. Jenkins is cleaning it so that he can take a break or something. So he opens the door and there's a fucking monster standing on the toilet. It's all you know, like gray and hairless with big black eyes and it's kind of kind of growling at him. This took a turn for sure. So Danny runs to the door and struggles with the, the cart, but he manages to turn it over and run out, and, and he tries getting the attention of a science classroom through the window, but nobody pays him attention. So he makes a tactical error and runs back to tell Miss Titmarsh there's a monster in the bathroom. The mean old bitch doesn't believe him and orders him to sit down and finish the exam. Well, that's when Rudy calls to attention that Danny has pissed himself. Miss Titmarsh calls him a baby and orders him back to the bathroom to clean up. Otherwise, she'll call his mother and tell her he needs to wear diapers to school. At this point, I hate everyone and want the monster to kill everyone, except for Danny, of course. So the terrified bullied child reluctantly returns to the bathroom but he doesn't see the monster and he notices a janitor's closet with keys in the lock so he opens it and he finds Mr. Jenkins body like stuffed inside and his head is in a small sink you know but it's not bloody or anything so don't worry I guess <laughs> right then the stall door opens and the monster comes out. So Danny throws a bar of soap at it. It catches it, so Danny grabs some powdered soap and throws it at the monster to run past it. Danny runs back to the classroom and tells Miss Titmarsh the monster killed Mr. Jenkins. Well, she orders the class to keep working while she escorts Danny to the bathroom, carrying her book with her for some reason. Mere seconds after they leave, the entire classroom starts throwing paper airplanes and descending into total chaos. Well, like you do, sure. So Danny and Miss Titmarsh go into the boys' room, and now there's no sign of the janitor's cart or anything being amiss. And the janitor's closet is locked. You know, she opens the stall, and it's empty. Well, except for tissue paper and protecto sheets, like, all over the place. There's also that, that creepy lighting effect with a fan's shadow rotating over bars. 
which makes it look like a like a film noir prison cell. No one would find any relaxation pooping in that stall. She starts cleaning up the stall, going on a tirade, while the ceiling panel silently is removed and the monster lowers itself behind her. She sees it and starts hitting the monster with her book, but he grabs it and, and grabs her and pulls her up into the ceiling. Her shoe falls off into the toilet water, which turns red. Danny just watches the monster make eye contact with him as he slowly replaces the ceiling panel. We cut back to the classroom, and it's goddamn Lord of the Flies in there as Danny runs back. Well, they settle down when the door opens, but then Rudy asks where Miss Titmarsh is, and her lackey refers to her as Boob Swamp. Danny says the monster got her. So Rudy, Ben Seaver, and the other lackey follow Danny back to the bathroom, taunting him. Danny hangs outside, sighing as the three boys go in. They call out to the monster and investigate, while out in the hallway, Danny pushes over a water fountain to keep the bathroom door from opening. Like a total sociopath. Ben Siva holds open the monster's stall and announces, There ain't nothing in there. So, of course, the monster grabs his neck and yoinks him inside. The stall door shakes, and feathers start flying. No clue where those feathers came from. Rudy says they should get out of there, but his lackey can't open the door because of the water fountain. The monster emerges, and Rudy pisses himself in karmic justice. The, the lackey shouts at the door for Danny to let them out. As we see Danny standing against the hallway wall, staring dead-eyed into space. Inside, Rudy quietly whimpers, Help me, as the monster grabs him. In the hallway, Danny sighs and shakes his head and starts strolling away as a toilet lid crashes through the glass window. He just nopes it out of there and leaves school as people hear the crashing and start to investigate. And that is the last we see of Danny in this film. He basically just murders three bullies and goes home. We cut to the principal going into the bathroom and seeing blood and destruction all over the place. We pan up into the ceiling to the attic above and it's all dark, and there's boys' shoes, and then, then the fucking monster is sitting on a stool wearing Mr. Jenkins' janitor uniform, and he grabs the head and puts it back on, then wraps skin over his hands. Because, that's right, the monster was Mr. Jenkins all along. Dun, dun, dun. So Sean Astin explains that after a few months, he moved to another town and got a job at a different school. Cut to Mr. Jenkins strolling down a courtyard, singing to himself at the new school. When he stopped by the principal, who was played by Clue Gulliger, another character actor and 
one who I personally love because he played Jesse's dad in A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, the gay one. I would love to talk Freddy's Revenge with you someday. It is a masterpiece, but, but also hilarious. So, yeah, maybe someday. So, Clue Gulliger and the head of the PTA stop Mr. Jenkins because they can't find the PTA lady's son. Well, she describes his appearance and that he's wearing a red flannel shirt. And well, Mr. Jenkins says, oh, he knows that kid and he's a bad apple, pushing around other kids and taking their lunches. Clue Gulliger's uh, all flustered by that, and, and he leaves with the PTA lady. So Mr. Jenkins stares at them leaving, then reaches into his mop bucket and pulls out a blood-stained red flannel shirt to start cleaning the window with. We haven't touched on it, but this film moves very slowly. This coda with Clue Gulliger and the PTA lady is a perfect example. It is over three minutes long, and there's nothing new in it. We get that Jenkins is the monster, and he kills bad kids, and he moves from school to school. A short story in an anthology doesn't need a three-minute coda that adds nothing but three minutes to the runtime. Yeah. So back with the boys camping, Sean Astin says they never caught Mr. Jenkins, the killer janitor monster. He just keeps moving around from school to school. And he could even be at their school. The bros, they don't believe him, but Sean Astin swears it's true because his dad worked at the school. And they can even ask, their Uncle Henry about it if they don't believe him. Hi there, dear listener. Lonely Smith here, taking just a moment to do a little house cleaning for the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Bride of the Monster. Yeah, that's right. I was looking at it, and um, you can see, like, how many listens and downloads and plays episodes of your podcast get. And I won't get into the specifics, but it's like there's a baseline that just about every episode and minisode has. And for some reason, our episode on Bride of the Monster is literally half the baseline. And of course, some episodes have a lot more listens, like Friday the 13th and Voodoo Academy. So I just want to remind listeners that only a, a fraction of you... <laughs> have listened to our episode on Bride of the Monster. Well, it's, and it's a good one. And we might be doing the sequel next season. So uh, maybe, maybe turn back and give that one a little listen to. That would be swell. Okay, and while we're at it, you know, I haven't, I haven't calculated how many hours it takes us to put together a full episode of the podcast, but I'd say somewhere around 10, 10 hours or so, and... That's why we do the mini-sodes every now and then, because that's a great way to keep putting out content weekly, you know, but having a lighter week every so often. Uh, so we're going to try and plan for mini-sodes every few weeks, and, and I've got a great one set for right before the season finale, which is fast approaching. And, and why am I telling you all this? Well, 
only because this is where you come in, dear listener. You see, we're going to be conducting some polls and getting some feedback and uh, all that from from you and, and going over it in our mini-sode. And that'll help shape uh, season two. So how, how can you be a part of that and make the show better? Well, start following us on Instagram at Lonely Gay Boy and his co-host, Horror. You, you can also search Lonely Smith and, and find us. That, that'd, be, that'd be real swell. And even better and sweller is our Patreon, which will have uh, more exclusive polls and whatnot. And that's at Lonely Gay Boy Horror Podcast. You can, you can become a patron and support the show and make it even better for, you know, as low as $1 a month. Or three dollars a month, or five. Anything I get will will help it make it so I can I can get movies, um, you know, to watch, you know, for next season because they ain't cheap. Sometimes you gotta go on, you gotta go on like Voodoo and pay like four bucks for a movie. And I, I don't have four bucks unless unless you give me four bucks. Okay, back to the show. I'm I'm sorry about that pitch. I feel, I feel like a dirty whore. Um, okay, back, back to the show. No, actually, I, I feel bad for saying dirty whore because, because we're sex positive here and, um, we support, we support the rights of sex workers. So I, I regret saying that. Okay, back, back to the show. Well, actually, now that I, now that I think about it, I, I don't think I sold, sold you yet on our, our Bride of the Monster episode. You know, it's, it's a goofy old good time with an Ed Wood movie, and we're we're proud of it, and worked real worked real hard on it. And okay, I feel like I've feel like I've really destroyed all the momentum we have in in our Willie's episode. Oh shit! Back to the episode. The little bro thinks the fireflies are getting dimmer, and Big Bro says he shouldn't keep them in a jar. He should be careful, or he'll end up like Gordy Belcher. Sean Astin asks who Gordy Belcher is, since Bob's Burgers hasn't come out yet, so he can't make a joke about him being Gene's alter ego. The bros tell him that Gordy was a kid who used to go to their school with them, who had a rather odd hobby. And... He shouldn't have ever gone to old Farmer Spivey's place. As we segue into the last story. And any fans of Salute Your Shorts will now take notice. Because Gory Belcher is none other than the man himself. It's Donkey Lips. Fun queer fact about Salute Your Shorts... Uh, the actor who played Sponge was bisexual and just sort of coming into his own during the filming. So he decided that Sponge would be gay, and he tried to playing it um, as gay as far as he could, you know, within the confines of the script. And Michael Bauer, who was Donkey Lips, you know, supported him and played along, and they tried to, as much as they could, uh, especially into the second season, play off that Sponge and Donkey Lips were a couple. Which only makes me love Michael Bauer even more. Here's this young, fat kid with a lisp, and he played some 
fantastic characters. Unfortunately, Gordy Belcher is not one of those. Michael does a, a good job in the role. It's just the role is horrible. He actually makes Gordy almost charming. Uh, you know, a, a lesser talented actor would not be able to pull that off. So Gordy has his backpack and he's walking by a farm that's surrounded by a wooden fence with signs saying danger and get out. So he kicks open the bottom half of some planks so he can sneak inside uh, with the fence, you know, still looking intact. When he cuts open a sack of fertilizer and puts it in a jar. Inside, we meet Farmer Spivey, who is basically a cartoon crazy farmer, complete with cackling. He is spray-painting his logo on sacks of Spivey's own Miracle Manure. Gordy knocks over a rake and runs off as Farmer Spivey takes a rifle and shoots it, like, like one and a half feet away from Gordy into the fence. Oh, and in the background, you can see a ginormous carrot. So you know the manure has to be good. Spivey asks Gordy what he's doing, so Gordy calls him an old fart. Oh, the intellectual barbs these two nemeses share. Spivey's warned him before and, and calls him a rodent for stealing and messing up his fence. And Gordy rightly points out that he's not the idiot who blew a hole in it. You know, they, they exchange some more barbs until Spivey runs Gordy off. So, so Gordy tears through the fence now that he doesn't need to be sneaky about it. Spivey looks at the sack of manure that's been stolen from, and he looks all distressed, uttering shit, which is a clever way to work in a cuss word in a kid's movie. Yeah. So Gordy walks through the city, and he uses an inhaler, and he comes to a pharmacy, and he steals nail polish remover. And the pharmacist, you know, like half catches him, so he buys a lollipop for ten cents and leaves. Back on the street, Gordy is walking down the sidewalk with the lollipop in mouth, practically dragging his backpack full of stolen goods. He passes a teen girl, and he just rolls his eyes at her. I don't know why, but it's such a great beat. Gordy, Gordy is just so above everything. So he sees a cat by a store, and he stops and pets it, and then, and then barks at it. So it runs right into the road, and that causes a dude in a pest control truck to spill his coffee on himself and nearly hit an old lady with groceries crossing the street. But he stops so sharply that his big cockroach statue on the top of the truck flies off in front of her, and she drops her groceries. And goddamn Gordy thinks it is the funniest shit he has ever seen. I'm starting to notice a trend in these bad horror movies. Protagonists aren't likable. Good point. Oh, Christ, I just realized this movie's just over half over. Buckle up for a whole lot of plotting, slow pacing. Buckled up and raring to go. So, so Gordy just crosses the street watching the old lady 
hitting the big bug sculpture, while the pest control guy defends it since it's expensive. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of humorous, so, so sure. So, so Gordy passes some cheerleaders laughing, and then, and then cut to farmland, and he inhales his inhaler again, and then he, he books it through a field to his isolated farmhouse. Up in his room, we see he's got this whole coffee can, dirty bug collecting system going on. And his room's kind of messy, and he's got pictures of moths on the wall, and old, like, 1960s horror comics. He goes downstairs, and his mom tells him not to spend too much time down there, and, and dinner will be soon. She's even making his favorite, fried chicken. But he's all whatever. Then he, then he fucking opens a trap door like he's descending into the basement in the Evil Dead and he's got a bug office in his basement. This table with lights and all these jars and tools like he's the fucking Zodiac killer. This is so creepy, you're not even doing it justice. Words can't. So Gordy dips a cotton ball in the nail polish remover and drops that in his jar of flies. And the fumes kill them. And he's got a whole box full of just flies' wings. And he starts examining a dead fly with tweezers through a magnifying light and taking off its wings. You know, the music is all classical and serene as he's doing this. And oh... Oh, shit. Holy shit, the flies aren't dead. The nail polish fumes just knock them out so he could remove their wings and then put them in an aquarium filled with his leftover food. He even drops his lollipop in there. Awfully sweet of him. Oh, it gets, it gets worse. So some of the flies have died, so he turns... And we pivot to this medieval castle scene he's built. And it's covered with dead flies as the soldiers. He's got a, he's got a church diorama. And the flies are the priests and, and in the pews. And there's one on the cross in Jesus' place. He shakes his head because this just isn't right. So he moves on to the next scene. And it's like a 50s diner so he adds the new dead fly to the booths and this could be the most disturbing thing ever captured on celluloid and it is for kids this is ostensibly a kids movie it, it is it's it's hard to talk about it's so messed up so his parents shout at him to come up for dinner, and he's all sighing and irritated with them. So he goes upstairs, you know, washes his hands, and, and sits down to eat chicken with his parents. His mom asks him if he's going to go to the school dance, and his dad points out that no girls want to go with him. Gordy sort of zones out while his parents bicker about him. But then he sees old man Spivey is on the TV doing an interview about his secret ingredient on KORN News. 
get it? Corn. Yeah. So Spivey's special fertilizer is the envy of the entire county, making huge-ass carrots and tomatoes and, and other veggies. He shows off a carrot that's like two feet long, but Spivey isn't interested in selling because he doesn't know what would happen if it falls into the wrong hands and turns ugly. It's also another example of how slow this movie is. The TV interview is three solid minutes. All it does is tell us that fertilizer has a secret ingredient which makes veggies grow like crazy. And they take three minutes to hammer home the idea. True, uh, but it's kind of fun that reporter Brock Richards, you know, was a real news reporter playing himself. And the anchor woman is played by Kirk Cameron's wife, who played his girlfriend on Growing Pains. Uh, continuing the Growing Pains casting connections for, for some reason. Oh, and there is a laugh at the end of the interview. A fertilizer the likes of which this reporter has never seen before, and that's no bull. For KORN News, I'm Brock Richards. Are we still rolling? Thanks, Brock. So Gordy and his parents uh, talk about Spivey some more until he sees a fly and, and captures it, and his parents are understandably freaked out. His dad complains that Gordy doesn't play sports, isn't interested in girls, and he doesn't have any friends. And since he didn't raise a fruitcake, he's putting an end to the fly obsession. His mom takes out a can of raisins, and it's filled with flies. We cut to Gordy sleeping that night, and see that there is an electric fly zapper outside his room, which casts his room in this creepy blue glow. It is effective. Yeah, he he sleeps in pajamas um, with his stuffed Bugs Bunny. And I don't know how they cleared that, but it, it, it's Bugs Bunny. So he goes downstairs for some water, and the little TV in the kitchen turns on by itself. And it, it shows scenes of Gordy, you know, like taking the tweezers and messing with flies. And then, because of course it does, it cuts to a scene... Of family ties with with Kirk Cameron sitting at the table with Tracy Gold. And Kirk Cameron is kind of irritating her while he's capturing flies. And she asks what he's doing with them. And, and Kirk Cameron turns directly into the camera and says they're not for him. They're for Gordy Belcher. What a bizarre cameo. They had to... I've shot that on the set of Growing Pains. Why? Why not? So the TV cuts to Spivey talking about his miracle manure. And then he goes all creepy, warning Gordy to stay off his land. And the TV goes out and he hears buzzing in the fridge. So he opens it and he sees himself dead and all blue in the fridge with flies all over him. The makeup on dead Gordy in the fridge is 
too good. Spivey comes back on the TV laughing, saying that's what happens to things that go bad. So Gordy wakes up from the nightmare, and he grabs his inhaler, but it's stuffed with maggots. Then he realizes his bed is full of worms, and he freaks out. Understandably so. But then Gordy wakes up from the nightmare and checks his inhaler, and it's fine. And then he sees, you know, there's no bugs in his bed. Besides, Bugs Bunny. (laughs) Yeah. So then we go to an outdoor lunch at Gordy's school the next day. He brings his tray to a table, and he forces his way into the middle of a bench, you know, scooting the other kids over, and they go silent. Gordy offers them a bag of cookies, uh, you know, but they don't take it. Two of the girls come up with a lame excuse and leave, leaving this one girl and one boy, you know, at the table. But then those two, they start to leave, saying they'll go sit in the grass. But Gordy stops them, and he gives a heartfelt speech about knowing that nobody likes him since elementary school, and everyone says he's too fat, and too weird, and too mean, and... But he's only ever mean because nobody gives him a chance. You know, and this convinces the two kids to stay. And we see, you know, there might be, there might be goodness in old Gordy after all. So he offers them his homemade cookies again. And this time, the girl says she'll take one. And Gordy looks like a kid on Christmas morning as she bites into it and runs off screaming. Because there are flies baked into the cookie. Cut to him leaving the principal's office with a note, and the nurse chastises him to go home as she tends to the girl who bit the cookie. So, of course, on Gordy's way back home, he can't help himself but stop at Farmer Spivey's. Only now, the private property signs say, Welcome and come in. So he just sort of sneaks in through the hole in the fence and and cuts open a bag of manure and starts putting it in a jar. Spivey comes outside, and the door breaks the jar, which cuts Gordy's hand. Gordy starts to run away, but Spivey's all friendly, saying he wants a truce and to bandage up Gordy's hand. Gordy is dubious, but he goes inside, and we get this exchange. But if I'm not home soon, my parents are calling the police. If you're not home soon, your parents will have a party. Spivey shows off his lab and and cleans off Gordy's bloody cut and bandages it. Spivey sends him off with a special jar of miracle manure just for Gordy. So whatever he's using it for will work extra good. Gordy's weirded out by it and kind of eye-rolls his way out of there. And Gordy leaves, and Spivey laughs maniacally. I laughed right along with him when I realized there was only ten minutes or so left of the movie. Gordy tries sneaking inside, but his mom catches him. He lies about it being a teacher conference day, why he's home so early. But his mom says the principal already called her. So she yells at him and says his obsession is over. And Gordy realizes she's holding a trash bag. 
So he books it down to his murder cave, and it's empty. She's cleaned out the entire thing, and he's he gets so upset, he, he screams that he hates her, and he runs up to his room. But Mom's even cleaned out his room. But she didn't know about his flypaper strip hanging outside his window. He snags three flies and puts them in the jar of Spivey's manure. Gordy delusionally says he'll get his stuff back, and then they'll have some fun. As sweetly ominous music plays, and we pull out through his bedroom window, being sure to catch the reflection of the boom mic in the glass. Then it's back to Gordy sleeping with Bugs Bunny, and he wakes up, hearing a noise, and he asks, Who's there? Who's there is three human-sized flies who have broken out of Spivey's manure jar. That's who. So, so Gordy freaks out and, and backs up against the wall as they come for him and knock over his lamp. Cue his mom waking up, having heard something, so she rustles his dad awake and forces him to come with her after dad fat shames Gordy again. So they sleepily go out to check on Gordy. They enter his room and turn on the lamp for the shocking reveal. Let's check in on special podcast correspondent Billy from Voodoo Academy for his reaction to what is about to unfold. What the fuck's going on here? Well, thanks, Billy. That is a well-earned reaction because Gordy is sitting up in bed and he's missing both of his arms. The giant flies slam his door shut and come at his parents, still holding his severed limbs. Outside, Spivey's watching from the shadows, laughing like a maniac. We cut to later, Gordy waking up from a peaceful nap in a hammock, and a fly lands on his face. And he goes to, you know, scratch it and chew it away as we pull back and realize he's got prosthetic hooks for hands. Back at the campfire, Big Bro explains that Gordy stopped going to school because all the kids he was mean to were now mean to him. Sean Astin says it is a good story, but he doesn't believe in giant flies. They bicker about both stories being true. And, you know, Sean Astin tells him they don't have to take his word. You know, his, his Uncle Henry told him about it. But then the little bro hears something and quiets them down. Sean Astin says he heard it too. But then the lantern goes out and they're in total darkness shouting. They feel around for the matches and, and goof around a little bit as they look for the jar of fireflies. But they're out now. Then lights turn on and we see that this tent is like three feet away from a house. They're just in Sean Astin's backyard, and his dad opens the flap, making sure that they're all good and not out there giving each other the willies. So Sean Astin says that the cousins 
didn't believe him about monstrous Mr. Jenkins. As Sean Astin relights the lantern, and we realize his dad is James Karen, who played Mr. Jenkins, only he's looking more normal without a mustache or glasses. Sean Astin's all gleeful, telling his dad to prove it. So Uncle Henry removes his mask, revealing the monster from the toilet, and the brothers are terrified as we pull out of the tent and watch the monstrous silhouette approach them. Cue and credits. There you have it, dear listener, the willies. And I think, well, I think there's a whole lot to like here, but, you know, not, not 90 minutes worth. It's certainly cheesy, but it's meant to be. Well, what's wrong with this movie besides the pacing? Well, um, good question. The effects are all practical, which means they basically hold up, even if a little cartoonish. But that goes with the tone of the movie. The acting is good. I suppose it is just the pacing. How would you fix that? Easy. Keep the wraparound with the kids in the tent. Keep the three quick shorts, but then cut out ten minutes from each of the two longer stories so they move along more briskly. Then add a third story. Now you're moving from story to story, keeping the laughs, keeping the horror, but ditching the extended shots of People walking or repeating information the audience already knows. Good idea. That way, when we are ahead of the story, knowing where it's going, we're not waiting as long for it to get to the punchline. Exactly. How do you solve a problem like the willies? Well, just like that. Shit, we are good. And how? Well, there goes another half hour off my life. That sound means I'm starting to get bored, so I want to wrap up and work on some Voodoo Academy fan art. Right then. What gem shall we be going over next week? A film with several familiar faces from 2001 that's supposed to be a psychological thriller, according to Wikipedia. But we may disagree on that count. That's right. Up next is box office bomb, Soul Survivors. As long as it's not as slow as the willies, I'll be happy. There is very little to be happy about. Great. This has been, and continues to be, Lonely Smith. And on account of co-host, we're signing off. Talk to you next time, dear listener. Until next time. Bye. Be well.